posture is, of a believer is that of surrender. A person had come to faith and uh, didn't have anything to give. And the, as the offering plate back in those days was being passed around, he asked if the ushers would lower just a little bit lower. And they said, just a little bit lower. One more time, just a little lower. And he himself stepped into the offering plate. And believed that in giving himself to God, he was making the surrender of his life. We are today in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. My name is R. Dallas Green. We welcome you to Grace. We welcome all those online that are watching with us. We hope to see you face to face. Our church has gone through a great rest restoration and transformation. And today we're going to talk about the transformation of the temple. Um, with, so look, look at Zechariah to find it if you have a Bible. It's, if you found the book of Matthew and turn left, two books. We're in the Minor Prophets. Uh, next week we'll be in Malachi, which is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And before I get started, I want to show you a picture on the screen. Um, and that's a pretty big mountain. Anybody know what mountain that is? I'll give you a little hint. It's in the land of Tanzania. It's the largest freestanding mountain in the world. It's uh, 19,341 feet tall. It's called the rooftop of the world. Anybody know what that is? That is the tallest mountain in, in Africa. That's Kilimanjaro. Just look at that moment for a, look at that mountain for a moment. Look at the size of the mountain. Anybody like to climb it? <laughs> well, we see the magnificence, the grandeur, the size of the mountain. God made the mountain, so God is bigger than the mountain. It's part of God's creation, you know. Coming up out of Denver toward the Rockies, you see the great uh, Rocky Mountains. They are just spectacular. Uh, a fellow from Colorado was coming to our church, and he asked me, where is the church near? And I said, it's near Braddock Mountain. Not far from South Mountain. And so he came, you know, east and came to the church and said, I kept looking for Braddock Mountain. I didn't see it. Like, I didn't see the mountains. See, he's used to these 12,000, 14,000 foot mountains and our little Braddock Mountain, little, you know, hill, he thought was not really a true mountain. Well, the Bible will speak about mountains. Sometimes it speaks about mountains in a positive light, sometimes in a negative light. And God himself is spoken of being like a mountain, immovable, immutable, everlasting. I want to ask you the question this morning as we start, what mountain in your life are you facing? We all have mountains. We could say that at work, there's a mountain of work piling up. Or when I was in school, I always felt as if I had this big old mountain of work to do. Or maybe you're dealing with a surgery, a health challenge. Maybe you're facing cancer and you've got that mountain to deal with. You might have a mountain of bills to pay or college debt to deal with. We all have our various mountains to face. For you parents and teachers and students, with the exception of Matt, um, you're gearing up for virtual school and it may seem as if you're um, it's a difficult task trying to do school online. And you don't know how to do your work plus take care of the kids at home 
And the governors just encourage their schools to open their doors, so every county must decide, but it creates tension. There's a certain tension and stress in people's homes. Many of you faced losses during this pandemic. You're grieving the loss of a marriage. You're grieving the loss of a parent. You're grieving the loss of an opportunity like graduation, perhaps the loss of your favorite sport. We feel like we're facing some kind of huge mountain in our life. Many of us feel discombobulated. We feel disoriented, disconnected from one another. We just feel out of sorts. We feel out of rhythm. We feel like there isn't much routine to our life. We try to put some structure into our life. We schedule a Zoom meeting, and then someone can't get on, and somebody gets kicked off, and somebody forgets about the meeting, and it's very frustrating. So you have this mountain in your life. You see, a mountain is an impossible situation that you're facing. Now, if I were going to climb Kilimanjaro, the first thing I think I would do is I would try to get in the very best physical shape I could possibly be in. After all, it's 19% success. And they say to do so, you have to be in the best physical shape ever. Then I get some really cool gear to climb with, a good pair of boots and socks and some. But the most important part of the climb would be to have a guide. Somebody who knows the conditions, somebody who knows the weather, somebody knows the path, because I have never ever climbed that mountain before. You see, I've not gone there before, but the guide would lead me through to the top, you see. I would definitely want to have a guide. Wouldn't you like to have a guide? So God knows that we are on a journey, right? And we don't know the path. And so what he does is he gives us the Spirit of God to guide us in the journey. So that's a little um, opening comment. Let's look now at this book of Zechariah. And let me give you a little bit of the background to this story. We're going to be in Zechariah chapter 4. The 70 years that Jeremiah spoke of, when the nation was taken captive, when they were in Babylon, is now over. The Babylonian kingdom has fallen to the Medes and Persians. The Persian king, whose name is Cyrus, he signed a decree allowing the people of Israel to go back to their homeland, permitting them to rebuild the temple. Now, the temple was very important to the people of Israel. Here's why. It's where they would gather to sing their praises. It's where they gathered to hear teachings about the laws of God. It's where they would bring their offerings and make their sacrifices. It was central to the life of the nation. So Ezra, the priest led the first contingency of about 50,000 pilgrims across the plains of Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, not all of the Jews went back. Some of them stayed there in Babylon. They'd become very wealthy and prosperous in Babylon. They had heard their city had been destroyed, Jerusalem, and the temple had been burned, so they stayed behind. So the first task when they came to the city of Jerusalem was to restore their broken-down homes. Now, when you go away for a week <laughs> and you come home to your house, right? there's grass to be cut, there's chores to be done to your house. Can you, can you imagine being gone for a whole summer? 
and coming home to your house and just begin to live again in the house that you've been away for for three months. Well, these people had been away for 70 years. And the city that they had left, Jerusalem, had been ransacked and looted and pillaged. We saw this week in Kenosha, Wisconsin, there was a young man who was shot seven times. And CNN played the video over and over again, stirring up the predictable response. And the upset people took the street looting and pillaging. Well, that's an image, if you will, of what happened in Jerusalem. The city was basically destroyed. So once they established their own residences there, they began working on the temple. Now, the first temple that was built was built by Solomon. It took seven years for Solomon plus 300,000 workers to work on the temple and build the temple. And it was magnificent. They took cedars from Lebanon. They took uh, huge stones and built a foundation. They built the wall, magnificent art. And the Queen of Sheba came up to Jerusalem and marveled at this magnificent temple. But now the first temple was in ruins, and there was rubble everywhere. No sooner had they begun rebuilding the temple than many problems began to arose. The people who lived in the area began to oppose this. I mean, not in my backyard, right? Don't build this temple back. So there was opposition. They wrote a letter to the king asking him to stop the work. There also was the workers themselves became exhausted. The job was much more difficult than they ever expected. So it wasn't long before they got into the project that the workers became discouraged. You can almost hear them say, if you listen, this was much harder than we expected. We will never finish this. There's a mountain of rubble to dig through. Let's just give up. Discouragement was running high in Israel, Judah, but is, discouragement is running high also in America, wouldn't you say? That so many are discouraged. This COVID-19 pandemic, we hear the questions, how long will it be till we get a vaccine? When can we finally lose these masks? How soon till our schools reopen? When can we play our sports again? So what happens when people the focus to hear first to themselves being first? He says to them, you've planted much in your gardens, but you've harvested little. Now, the whole point of a garden is that it's to feed one's family, but to have an abundance to share with others, right? But they became sort of self-centered, focused on themselves. He said, you earn wages, but it's like putting purses with holes in them. He said, you've got the wrong priority. You put yourselves ahead of God. And then we hear Haggai's famous words, give careful thoughts, thought to your ways. You people have the wrong focus, he's saying. You've made yourself and your comfort You've made your pleasure your number one priority. As long as your pleasure and your comfort is your number one priority, you will never experience satisfaction. 
And isn't this what maybe God is saying to America? Give careful thought to your ways. Look at the wildfires burning out in California. Look at Laura slamming into the Gulf Coast. Look at the pandemic taking the lives of so many. Look at the injustice and the social unrest in America. All of these are designed to get the attention of these people who have turned their heart away from God, you see. God wants us to turn back to him because when we turn back to him, he turns to us. And because of Haggai's prophetic word, it stirred up Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the ruler, to restart the building process. Now, Zechariah chapter 4, let me read this to you. So hopefully you found it by now. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me. Now, I happen to like this angel very much because he's a waking angel. And uh, Zechariah has fallen asleep, and the angel is waking him up. So this, I call this a waking angel. And just a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, and seven channels to the lights. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right, and one, one on the right of the bowl, and the other on the left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And he answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said to me, and you'll know these words, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by might, not by individual, not by collective strength, not by power, not by individual strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah has eight different visions. This is the fifth of the vision happening in chapter 4. And they're designed to bring encouragement to the people. They started with great energy. They plowed into the project, rolling up their sleeves. But they hit headwinds, opposition. They lost their steam and they lost their focus. Zechariah himself would have known of something known as a candlestick, a menorah. I brought my portable candlestick along. This is taken from my house. So here is a candlestick, and here is a candle, and the candle goes in the candlestick. So what would happen in each of the Jewish homes is the menorah would be lit, especially at times like Hanukkah, to remember how God sustained them through that season. The menorah was a national symbol of Israel. It stood outside of the Knesset, their parliament. And one of the daily tasks of the priest would be to fill the golden lampstand with oil. In the tabernacle, there was just one of these golden lampstands. But in the temple, there would be ten golden lampstands. So why would the priest take oil that the people would bring, and why would he pour oil into the golden lampstand? Good question. God commanded that the light 
of the nation should never go out. The golden lampstand in the tabernacle was a symbol to Israel that God is the light of the world. That when God made the heavens and the earth, God said, let there be light. And on the first day, God brought light out of darkness. And so there were seven different, um, there were seven different um, channels to this menorah. Seven different lights. And the priests would never let the light go out. God meant for Israel to be a light to shine, for the light of God to shine through them. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you my disciples are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men. God has always intended his people to be a light shining in the dark world. That's why the priest every day would pour oil into the light so the light would never go out. Now, any task that you do every day becomes somewhat monotonous, doesn't it? Like if you do dishes every day, or if you do diapers every day, or if you go driving every day. So what happens in the vision is God gives to Zechariah a vision. He's drowsy, and so he awakens him, and he says, what do you see? And Zechariah says, I see a golden lampstand with a bowl on the top, with seven lights on it, with seven channels to light. And standing beside this, the golden lampstand, I see two olive trees. Now, if there is a tree, an olive tree, standing beside the lampstand, that would mean a constant supply of oil, an inexhaustible supply of oil is available. Whenever you see oil in the Bible, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. He's giving him a vision of the oil of God flowing from the tree through the channels to the light stand, giving light in the darkness. The angel answered, do you know what these are? No, he said, I don't know what they are. He's saying, first of all, there is, this is the first point, is there is an unlimited supply of power available with God's Spirit. If you're facing a mountain, if you're looking at a difficult obstacle, if you're dealing with a hard circumstance in your life, you need to know that there is an availability of God's Spirit to you, to empower you, to strengthen you, to help you, to comfort you. God wants to help you with the situation you're facing by giving you his spirit. You see, the believer understands that there's an indwelling Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. And we ask for God to fill us with that spirit, to fill us with the love of God, with the power of God, to face whatever we have to face. You see, what God's saying is, it's not by human might, it's not by human power, it's by my spirit. The work of God is to be accomplished not by might or by power, not only by human resources and resourcefulness, not only by human brawn and brains. The work of God is to be accomplished by the spirit of God. And it's extremely important before we start any endeavor, let's say we're going to start school tomorrow, to really surrender ourselves to God 
and ask for the Spirit of God to help us. The secret to any successful work for Jesus Christ is to discover how the Spirit is moving and to move with the Spirit. To see what the Spirit is, how the Spirit is leading and to move with the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit. How can you know the leading of the Spirit? I say that God often leads us by opening doors and closing doors. If God opens a door to you, you can walk through that door. If the door isn't open, don't try to break it down. Never try to force a door that is locked. So often we want the door to open, we push hard on the closed door, we say, I'm going to make it open, and we put so much energy in trying to open a door that is locked. I wanted to tell you a little bit of a story here of how I believe the Holy Spirit moved. When you came into the church this morning, for those of you online, when you come back and walk through the doors, you'll discover there's three stones outside, three large stones. They represent three miracles that God did. When we first opened the chapel back in 1988, we uh, started small, but God began to increase us. We had one service, then two services, three services, four services. People were literally uh, pushed out through the doors, out on the narthex, out on the street, uh, you know, trying to take in the service. And at the same time as the church was growing, I was getting to know our neighbor. And our neighbor up just above us to the west, Mr. Masser, he was, how would I say this, a country farmer. Mr. Masser um, loved his pigs. He was a pig farmer. And so I would take my little walks, you know, back in 1988, out from the church, and I'd see Mr. Masser. And Mr. Masser wanted to talk about the weather or talk about his pigs. And we would have these little chats and get to know one another. And then Mr. Master's wife became very ill with cancer. And I prayed for her and prayed with her. But Mr. Master seemed kind of oppositional, kind of cranky. And then she passed. And on one of my walks, I said, Mr. Pas Mr. Master, it seems as if you're feeling very down. He said, yes, I'm quite depressed about the loss of my wife. I'm feeling quite lonely. And he invited me into his house. Now, Mr. Master smoked pretty profusely. And he had contracted emphysema. He had a very deep cough. And he would smoke a cigarette right beside his oxygen tank. I said, oh, Lord, please. Don't let that cigarette fall on that oxygen tank. So one day I said to him, I said, Mr. Master, what do you think happens when we die? And he said, Pastor, I don't know. I know my wife has gone to heaven, but I don't have any idea what happens when we die. I said, would you like to hear the best news ever of how a person can know for sure they have salvation? He said, sure. And I said, well, it goes like this. God wants to have a relationship with you. We've all fallen. We're all sinful. And Jesus Christ came to take our place. He went to a cross. He died on the cross for our sins. And if you will believe and receive this, you'll receive eternal life. Well, that day, Mr. Master prayed to receive Jesus Christ. The owner of the master house became a believer. And I would come up there to his house, and he loved to have a bowl of beans with ham in it and uh, smoke his cigarette. And I would explain to him things about the Christian life. 
And one day I said to him, Mr. Master, you know, the church is growing, but in order for us to build, we're going to need to have some land. In fact, we need to have your land. Um, we can give you the fair price for your land, but we'll give you a life estate. You can live here as long as you live, but we'd like to have the land to build with. And I said, why don't you pray about it, Mr. Master? And he prayed it over and he came back and he said, Pastor, I think I'm ready to do this. And so the first stone stands for the land that God provided for the building. See, God was leading us to build, but there were a number of miracles he had to do. The second of the stones stands for water. Now, when we first started the church, we had a little well. It had uh, about one gallon every five minutes, consisting of iron and sulfur. And when we're going to build, we would need to have a sprinkler system. We would need to have public water, but public water was far away away. And that's when the county commissioners decided to condemn the Braddock water supply and cap perfectly good wells and require residents to spend $10,000 for a tap into the public water supply. Well, the water was going to extend to Mr. Master's house. And so I went to the county commissioner's meeting, praying for the Holy Spirit to empower me. And the Jan Gardner, who was the county commissioner chairperson at the time, she said, who is against this measure? And 200 people rose to their feet and rose their hands and said, I'm against this. And she said, who is for this measure? And I stood up. I was the only guy. Can you imagine, okay, all the residents are upset. They're saying, like, we don't want this public water. We love our wells. We don't want to pay $10,000. Who's for this measure? And I stood up and I said, you know, I'm a resident here, and I'm not happy about the fact that we all have to pay these extra monies, but our church is in need of water. In order to have sprinklers for our new building, we need to have water. We will pay for Mr. Master's water. We'll pay for our water. Please include us in the public water system. And they said, yes. So the second miracle was water. God gave us water. And the third rock stands for provision. And what God did was he took people and he gave them a spirit of generosity and sacrifice. And some people postponed buying cars. Some gave up vacations. Some changed their lifestyles. Some gave out of their savings. They prioritized this and gave to the Lord and God provided for us. What I'm trying to say is, before you start any endeavor, you want to have the leading of the Holy Spirit. How is God leading? And whenever God is leading you, there also will be confirmation that you're on the right path, you see. So for us, we were praying, Lord, please open these doors. And God was confirming to us the path we were on. Okay, the second thing I want to say is, that this biggest obstacle, the mountain, is going to be removed. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. He says, What are you, O mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God, Bless it. God bless it. You see, he asked the question, What are you, O mighty mountain? What is this obstacle in comparison to Almighty God? What is this difficulty we are facing compared to the greatness of our God? What are you, Almighty Mountain? Sometimes 
mountains to us are literal. They had a literal mountain with rubble. The rubble was heaped up on the temple court. But this mountain was going to disappear. This mountain was going to be leveled out. The mountain would become level plain. And sometimes the mountains to us are metaphorical. In other words, we're facing a very big problem, a problem we can't solve. Let's say we're dealing with an addiction and we can't heal ourselves. Is God able to deliver a person from an addiction? You see, it is glorious how God can level our mountains. So many times we worry about things that are in our future. We're worried about what's coming down the pike. But when we arrive there, we see that the mountain has already been made flat. Remember the women? They were worried about, you know, how are we going to roll away the stone? And so they came to the tomb, and God had already removed the stone. And they had access to Jesus, the empty grave. What I'm trying to say is that God promised to Zechariah, to Zerubbabel, that the mountain was going to be leveled. And third, the project was going to be completed by God's empowerment and their effort. He says, you're going to put the capstone on this thing. The very hands that began the project are going to be, bring it to completion. It took four years for them to rebuild the temple. Digging through the ruins, relaying the foundation, building up the walls, keeping the momentum up. There'd be plenty of blood, sweat, and tears. There'd be plenty of obstacles to overcome, plenty of challenges to face. But the very hands that laid the foundation Zerubbabel would also put the capstone onto the temple. It was going to be done. And fourth, and finally, gladness would fill their hearts. It's verse 10. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It's a small thing now that we are gathering. But it is a statement to us of what matters because we consider worship to be essential. God has commanded us to gather, to not forsake the gathering together of the saints. So we also lay a witness down to our culture about putting God first. Our culture is watching the church through this, that we are not afraid. We are taking precautions. We are listening to the governing authorities submitting there, listening to the medical authorities, but we are not living in fear. We are letting the Spirit of God enable us to take steps of faith through this crisis. You may ask the question, how is it then, Pastor R, if I really want to be led by the Spirit, how do I allow the Spirit of God to lead me? First of all, if I want the Spirit of God to lead me, I cannot follow a culture that does not follow God. If I want to follow after God, I cannot be so immersed in my culture that I have embraced the values of my culture. You see, you can't take two directions at the same time. You can't serve God and serve money. You have to decide who's going to be number one in your life. Exodus 23.2 says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. There's plenty of people in the crowd who are doing what is wrong. 
But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't follow the crowd that's following, that's not following after God. People believe, many people believe, if everybody else is doing it, it must be okay. If it's legal, it must be okay. Most people make a decision about what is right and wrong based on acceptance. What will find the greatest acceptance in the eyes of others? And if I want to be led by God's Spirit, I can't follow my friends who are going in the wrong direction. If my friend is not following after God, I can't follow my friend. You see, it's one thing to be countercultural. It's another thing to not let a friend going in the wrong direction influence me. One of the reasons why we don't hear God's will is we're always listening to other people's point of view. Let's do this. Let's go there. Let's drink this. Let's take this. Let's watch this. I can't follow friends who aren't following after God. Am I going to listen to friends or to God? There's a lot of bad advice out there, isn't it? This is a day when you, anybody can be a blogger. You know, what I want to say is, if you go to work and there's a person there who's talking about having an affair after affair, listen to them talk about it, brag about it. If I'm not discerning, what will happen is I'll begin to follow them. The scripture says, don't keep company with bad friends. So how does a person then, how does a person then be led of the Spirit? If I want to get divine guidance, I must want to be led. I have to desire it. I have to want it. It starts with a longing, a desire, a craving. Have you ever been underwater so long, you just wanted someone to let go so you could take a breath? You ever been so desperate for God that you just wanted to hear his voice, you just wanted him to speak, you wanted him to lead, I must be willing to do what God says to do. And if I am willing to obey in advance, before he tells me, the answer is yes. God, I surrender my life to you completely. And I must look to God's word. The psalmist says, your word, O God, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If I do not navigate by the word of God, I am living in the dark. I'm trying to walk through life with, without a flashlight. And finally, if I want to be led by the spirit of God, I must ask the Holy Spirit to be my guide. I must ask the Holy Spirit to guide me in this decision. I've got a huge medical decision to make. I've got a really big financial decision to make. I've got something to do with schooling with my kids to make. I've got a friend of mine who's headed down the wrong path, and I need to have wisdom to know how to speak into this. God, I really need you. I really need for you to speak into my life. I need you to lead me through your Holy Spirit. These are how God wants us to be led. We all face a mountain. We have never passed through this mountain before. And so we look to God to lead us, to guide us as we make this journey together. Would you pray with me?
Our Father in heaven, Zechariah was facing, and the people were facing, Zerubbabel, a huge challenge. There was rubble everywhere. The Temple Mount um, virtually couldn't be seen. The ruins of the city were there. The temple had been burned. There had been looting and violence, pillaging. And they were discouraged, just, God, as we've been discouraged. I would pray, Lord, for a measure of faith for our people, a, a patience and a perseverance, a willingness, Lord, to ask you to lead us, to show us the path forward. God, on a personal level, we need to hear your voice. We feel discombobulated, Lord, and disoriented, disconnected from one another, sometimes from you, Lord. These have been long days. We have plowed ahead. But God, we need you. We need you in our land. Our cities are on fire. The people are in the streets. There's a cry for justice in our land, O oh Lord. There's been much injustice. And you call us, Lord, to justice and mercy and to walk humbly with you. God, would you show us what our part is, how to walk through this season, Lord. Personally, God, there's decisions each one of us is making. And God, we need your wisdom. Would you pour it out from on high? We need your courage and your boldness. We need your confidence, Lord. We need your comfort in our losses. Oh, Lord, your people are in such need of you to be led with the Spirit. We need to be filled with your Holy Spirit. Fill us, Lord, with your Spirit. Fill us to the fullest measure. May you draw near to us, Lord, as we draw near to you. God, let us hear the promptings of your Holy Spirit. God, as the Word of God just soaks into our life, may your Spirit speak to us. May we walk, Lord, in your ways, not in the ways of this world, not in the ways that our friends would have us to walk, but walk in ways that are pleasing to you. God, lead us, lead us, lead us, God, we ask in Jesus' name, we pray. And God's people said, amen. So every day, the priest would come into the holy place and he would pour his oil into that candlestick that the light would never go out. God had designed a picture to us of what it is in a Christian's life by the filling of the Spirit, of how we need to be filled with the Spirit daily, hourly, moment by moment, in order to live the Christian life. D.L. Moody was asked, why do you ask so many times to be filled? He says, because I leak. You see, we all leak. We have this battle with the flesh and the Spirit, and we need to be filled with the Spirit. Imagine tomorrow morning, you take your class and you're filled with the Spirit of God. And there's an excitement, a joy as you do your work with diligence, as you learn your lessons, as you put up with all the technology, that you're a light 
shining for Jesus Christ in that school system. Or you show up tomorrow to work, you know, maybe it's online, maybe in person, and you're filled with the Spirit, and the light of Jesus Christ is shining. Don't let anything snuff out the light. Just let yourself be filled with the Spirit, and let your light shine before men. They may see your good deeds. and Glorify your Father in heaven. Pray with me. Now may the amazing love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence, power, and indwelling and overflowing power of the Holy Spirit be upon each one of us as we choose to be led by the Spirit and manifest light to our world, we pray in Jesus' name.